The following is our extended conversation with Taylor Darwin on social and emotional learning. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this conversation. I want to welcome Taylor Darwin to the Teaching Like Ted Lasso podcast. Taylor, would you uh, tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yes, my name is Taylor Darwin, and I am a community college instructor in Texas. I teach our mathematics courses, and I teach a, a wide range of learners from developmental to co-requisite to our advanced courses. And while I do that, I am also a mother, and I am a doctoral candidate. I am very excited to be here and talk about things that I've learned in my studies, but also have um, attempted to implement in my classroom as I'm concurrently learning about them. Are you familiar with the TV show, Ted Lasso? I am. And I had to play catch up last night with my husband to make sure that I was all caught up on the most recent season in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a requirement. We've had people who have never watched it at all. The whole, the, the premise, right, is that we watched Ted Lasso. We felt like um, there were lots of good lessons there. We recognized that there are a lot of teachers who are already doing those things, and we wanted to hear those voices, right, and, and learn from those folks. And so whether or not you'd watched it, that would be fine, but I'm, I'm glad that we can have that conversation as well. In one of the episodes, Tan Lines, pretty early on, we find out that Ted has traveled 4,438 miles to be able to work at Richmond. And we know that Ted asks lots of questions to get to know the people around him. We try to do the same thing on the podcast. So our question for you is, what's the farthest you've ever traveled from home? I went to Thailand once to visit my cousin, and that is the longest I ever remember being on a plane. It was about a 15-hour plane ride. And then in terms of how long specifically, it makes me think of, I spent about two months in Peru once, and it wow. seems like the 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 length of time versus the distance has been um, a little more meaningful for me in terms of travel. If I'm able to stay in a certain place and get to know people in that area, it's been it's been really an interesting travel experience. Farthest I've been is Tanzania and Africa. We have a study abroad program there. We take students to teach in. Uh, Tanzanian schools for a month. And I agree with you being there for a month has a whole lot different experience than just, you know, a visit for a couple of weeks or something. So right. this particular episode is going to be about social emotional learning. So if you were going to describe to somebody what social emotional learning is, what what would your definition be? I have been wrapping my mind around social emotional learning for a while. And at, at first, when we're having these conversations in our department meetings, some of my colleagues and I refer to this as the feel good part of math or the feel good mm. part of teaching. And I think for the first year or so, when I was learning about this and implementing some of these strategies, I separated it from the content. And mm -hmm. as I've evolved this a little bit, I've started to realize that social emotional learning is not only about checking in with students and seeing how they're doing and, and the feel good part of it, because it is, I think it is important to establish relationships and see how your students are doing emotionally. 
But I also think in part, it has something to do with tying those needs into the, to the content. In my case, I teach math, as I've said, and to tie in their interests and their needs and their, you know, their well-beings into the content has been a little more meaningful for me. And so if I were to uh, attempt to define it, it would be uh, in that way, incorporating those needs into the content, not just keeping them as two separate entities, if you will. That makes sense, especially it sounds like given your work with the Dana Center at the University of Texas, as I poked around that, I saw that there was a lot of connections that were being made between the SEL and the Standards for Mathematical Practice. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about what that process was like and how you're seeing that being implemented? Absolutely. So the the Dana Center has been really a dream to work with. These people are amazing and they, they feel to me like they're in a lot of meaningful parts of our education system. And so Um, If you're not familiar with their work, um, for those of you who are listening, I definitely encourage you to go look at their website. My role with the Dana Center was helping them develop their co-requisite foci session. And in Texas, we have co-requisite courses, which essentially are developmental courses, uh, students that were meant to be placed in developmental courses, in our case, mathematics. And instead of taking the developmental course and then the transfer level course, such as algebra, now they're taking them simultaneously. And essentially, this initiative allows students to complete their degree in a more efficient time management way. I help them develop these co-requisite sessions. And a lot of the material that we created for these sessions circulated around social emotional learning and meeting with these professors um, we'd have six sessions um, in a in a foci session and attempting to understand the co-requisite student and, and implementing these data-driven decisions and really centering our discussions around mindset of ourselves as instructors and, and, and also implementing these strategies on our students as well. Because I know that if we have any math people listening, they have heard their students say, I have math anxiety. And mm-hmm. that again is they have an emotional attachment to math and it's negative. And how do we, how do we separate that? How do we understand that? And how do we help them move past this idea that I'm not good at math anymore? I was told I wasn't good at math either in elementary or secondary, or they're in my class because the college told them they're not college. Mm. So they have had a lot of issues. And I think a lot of our students, when it comes to math and in other subjects, have a big emotional baggage. And again, that's where I've kind of understood there is an emotional baggage here and we need to figure out how to support them emotionally to get through this content. And so that's just some of the stuff that we talked about with the Dana Center and and some of the conversations that we had when developing these materials to provide to instructors and how to best support some um, students that they'll interact with. You said you just finished um, finished up watching, uh, getting caught up on Ted Lasso. I've been thinking a lot about the sewer scene and how in the sewer scene, as Ted's talking about this idea of them connecting, relying on one another and building a community of 
in that case, footballers, right? But thinking about the same thing of developing a community of learners in our classroom, that that, that has that SEL sort of feel to it. That is so true. And I think it's even more prevalent now after COVID, we're starting to see the effects that it's had on students. And I mean, it has had an effect on many people, but especially students and they know what it's like to, to learn in an isolated way and they're used to that and that's what they're comfortable with. And, and it's up to us as instructors to really try to inspire them to create that community and, and want to come to class and want to communicate with people and, and kind of make it an expectation. You teach, you said, one of these co-requisite classes. How do you see that happening in that class? How are you supporting other professors who are uh, interested in applying it in, in their courses? So what does, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. In terms of community, I really try to, and I've heard this oftentimes on your podcast, um, I've implemented building thinking classrooms. My, I got a grant and my entire classroom is filled with whiteboards. And so it's the first day of class and it sounds cliche to say, but it's true. If I start with explaining the syllabus on the first day, I've already lost the students. They've already gotten to their mind that this is just like an, an, another college class. And the, the issue with college, in my opinion, is the students come in with this stigma that this person is um, the professor and we're not going to have a relationship and this is going to be difficult. And mm. I mean, they've been fed this their entire lives. Well, you can't do this when you get to college. I think there's already that disconnect there that you have to break down. And I'm, I'm a small five foot person, I'm trying to come at them saying, I'm not an intimidating person. I promise you, it is my job to help you succeed. And this isn't any sort of bell curve distrib grading distribution. If everyone makes an A, we can help everyone make an A. There are, no, there are no finite amount of A's. And so just having those conversations and getting them up and talking to one another. And for my online students, I have mental health check-ins, which have been mm. really meaningful to me because a lot of the times these students are, again, an, a community college, non-traditional. They work, they're single mothers. They need to know that someone cares about them. They need a space to say, I said, how's your week going? And a lot of the times, I'll find out that their grandparent died or that they mm. got laid off from their job, whereas I would have never known that. They they don't want to message me and say that. They think they're bothering a professor and in no way that they are, but it provides a space for them. And in terms of, you know, connecting it to the content, I've really in the last year or so reassessed the way that I'm providing assessments. And so in, mm. in prerequisite courses, they have historically not had a positive experience with assessment. That is why they have been placed in these courses because they failed a high stakes assessment. And so I have tried to get away from only using high stakes assessment and going into project-based learning because that is something that they're going to use in their real life working with others or um, something of that capacity. And I will say this, that I have had many, many failures and I always go in with it and sometimes say, this is the first time that I've ever done this. I don't know how it's going to go, but I 
thought that y'all were the right class to try it with because I want to see what you can do. And so I try to incorporate assignments that are going to inspire students to work together. And if I'm lucky, bring part of themselves into the assignment as well. I'm just trying to alleviate their math anxiety. That is the biggest thing that I hear. And if anyone says that they had fun or if they learned something today or if they bring part of themselves into it, that is a win for me as an instructor. So it sounds like starting off right from the beginning, creating a classroom culture of we're in this together, that you're getting to know them, that they're getting to know you. Some of that power dynamic that happens so much in college classrooms, you're trying to address that. Along with that, it sounds like assessment is something that you're recognizing as a part of that dynamic that needs to change. So those sound like some of the ways that you are incorporating SEL into the content. Do you feel like I've got a good grasp of kind of what you do? Is there so. more? Okay. Um, I did see that last one question about some folks suggest that SEL is a distraction. My response to that would be that I just would like to say that SEL is not threatening the integrity of my course. It's mm -hmm. not minimizing the rigor. It is just changing the way that we have done things in education for the last however many years, which we know isn't working. And SEL is a, a strategy that I think we need more than ever post-COVID. Our students feel disconnected. They need that connection. They need to be emotionally supported, but it's not in any way saying that in lieu of this, you're not going to learn quadratic equations. We're still learning. We're just incorporating supportive structures for students. That's nice. Well, and that then I think leads into your research, right? I have focused my research on these co-requisite populations because um, as far as we know, these courses have a high enrollment, uh, Black and Latino students at a, at a disproportionate amount, and first-generation college students, and low-income students, which is essentially the vast majority of students enrolled in community college, and therefore we have a lot of co-requisite courses. I've really been interested in this. I, I talked to um, a group of Latinas as they identify themselves who were enrolled in these courses, but then they mentioned the instructors so frequently that I wanted to take the research a step further. So then I started speaking to some instructors of color because I was interested in the relationship that instructors of color had and how they approached these populations of students. A lot of the instructors, I wasn't searching for SEL, but every single one of them mentioned it in some capacity. And I will say this too, you said that a lot of um, teachers probably implement Ted Lasso's um, teachings, even if they haven't watched the show. I can say that I think a lot of teachers implement SEL, even if they don't know what it means, or even if they don't know what it's called officially. All of these instructors implemented some form of SEL and a lot of it um, was shown through their, their vulnerability and their own personal experiences with learning growing up. For example, one of the instructors identified himself as a um, queer Latino individual, and he kept talking about the safe space that he wanted to create for his mm -hmm. students. I mean, he, he said it so frequently that I, I mean, it, 
it kind of changed the way that I viewed the way that I approached that idea. And the why is he, you know, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why is this so important to him? I mean, of course, a safe space is important to me too, but it's not something that I would just talk about at length as he did. And we finally, you know, he finally admitted that he didn't feel safe growing up. He grew up in a very conservative area. He didn't feel like he was afforded this. And this is something that he wants to do to their students. And uh, this research has really, and this experience had, has made me think about the way that educators approach students with different backgrounds and um, experiences. Because, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it a little bit, but the towing the line between sympathy and empathy as an educator, you know, um, I think my educational practices changed a lot. In the last three years, as I've become a mother and a student again, I think a lot of the times we forget what it's like to be a student. We think, oh, they forgot this due date again. I am one of the worst students now that I'm a student again. I turn in everything late. That's just life and it happens. And having that conversation with him made me realize I have sympathy towards my students because I am a student again. And he has sympathy because he wants to create the safe space because this is not something that he was afforded. But how do we reach beyond that and, and you know, allow instructors to kind of move beyond that idea of I want something through something similar to I can try to understand what you're coming from and help you learn in this way and support you emotionally, even though I haven't actually experienced what you're going through. And so anyways, the 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 experiences talking with them helped me realize that even though I'm not, you know, haven't gone through some of these experiences as my students, how can we support these students and how can we support instructors and teachers to, you know, develop this emotional intelligence to be able to do that with their students as well? That's my long-winded answer. I'm sorry. You need to be passionate about what you're what you're doing, right? Because you're going to spend a lot of time, you know, <laughs> looking at that and, yeah. so, and how you went about, right? You were, you were noticing and what you were hearing from the students and that got you curious, going back to Ted Lasso, right? That got you curious about, well, what are these instructors doing? And then finding out even more about what's what's happening in those classrooms, and and I think if we don't, if we're not able to be able to know those things and be able to tell those stories and be passionate about those, then they just go away. One of the goals of one of the goals of this podcast was just to be able to talk to cool people, right? But the other was be able to, like I said, get their stories out there because otherwise those stories aren't heard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about the so the collaborative for academic, social, and emotional learning Castle uh -huh. um, has these has those five domains. And again, a lot of these resources we'll put in the show notes so people can find them. But you're what you're talking about. I mean, self awareness, self management, social awareness, relationship skills, responsible decision making. You're right. Effective teachers do that without maybe even knowing it. And so, how do we help them provide frameworks or provide resources to help them to do what they're doing, maybe accidentally, intentionally? The best thing, as far as transitioning from secondary to post secondary, for me was the time that I 
was able to implement reflection into my practices. I just Mm. simply had more time. And again, I, I think that secondary and elementary, they don't have enough time. And that is something that needs to be changed in our education system. And that is, I believe, one of the reasons where some of these other countries, you know, are starting to surpass us in terms of these worldwide assessments as we kind of compare ourselves. And if you look at their systems, educators are more respected in their society and they are provided more supports during the workday. You know, they're just provided more resources. And I think this is something that has become very evident to me as I have the time during the day. I don't work on my weekends like I used to or every single night after work. Again, I think just the time to allow teachers to be able to reflect and think about things that have happened during the day and, and, and things that, and ways that this actually means. A student came to me and said this, but I've got 20 other things to do. So I can't, I don't even have time to think about that versus, you know, just providing educators the um, time to process information would be a huge gift and something that I think would be valuable for our education system. Yeah, that's great. And then it gets, then that gets at that self-awareness and reflection and hopefully also that collaborative bit, right? That mm-hmm. we need to give teachers more of a, an opportunity where they can work together. Yeah, we, we need to do more to support teachers through this process if we really are serious about improving uh, out student outcomes. We need to think about how we can help teachers. Besides giving teachers more time, what are some other resources that you might point people to as it relates to social emotional learning? In terms of resources, things that have helped me are, as we've discussed, the Dana Center has some really good resources, although I think there's maybe limited to math, could be wrong. I look a lot to my colleagues that inspire me in this field. And I mean, in this in this area of SEL, we collaborate a lot. And these are the people who are helping me be just a sounding board and say, how do you think this assessment's going to go? Or, you know, this project that I'm going to try to implement with my students and just having that community again. And I mean, Twitter is great. Twitter has been, I just got on Twitter a few months ago and it's been a really good community. I think there's some dark, dark, deep dives that you can go on Twitter, but there's also this happy, positive aspect to Twitter. And if you stay in that realm, I think it can be a really great space to ask people questions and get feedback. That's some of the resources that I would recommend to others. Great. And we'll, um, again, put those uh, in the show notes, including Taylor's Twitter handle so that you can connect with her and keep these conversations going. We have a little bit of extra time here. Where do you see SEL and Ted Lasso? So I'm going to try to bring this together. Like I said, I was trying to bring SEL and the content together. I think that a lot of people would expect a football coach to teach people how to play and do the practices and then go home. But he takes a very deep interest in the well-being of his players and their individual experiences and really, truly wanting to form a relationship with them. And he recognizes the fact that if they're having a bad day, they're probably not going to play as well. Or if something's going on in their life, they're probably not going to perform as well as, you know, they would like. 
And I think the same can be said for our education um, system and for you know teachers in general. If you're noticing that your student's having a bad day, they're not going to be present in this lesson. Or you know, if something's going on in their life, it probably needs addressing and maybe they need a mentor. And in a lot of ways, he is that mentor for them and he's able to incorporate these, these ideas into his practices and coaching. And I, I just find it really inspiring a lot of the times when I'm when I'm watching this because he's very bold about it. There are instances where it's very difficult and sometimes awkward and you don't know how to approach things with a student or even a colleague or you know whatever the situation may be. But he's really brave and he surprises mm. me a lot of the times just with the vulnerability and the, the, the way that he really cares deeply about his players. It's very inspiring. Yeah, I have to say anytime that uh, I, I think about a difficult conversation that I have to have, I think about that last conversation he has with Nate and his, his being very open and vulnerable when he says, what do I have to learn here? That there are so many lessons throughout the show from all of the different characters. I mean, the the Diamond Dogs are just uh, a great example of kind of when you were talking, Taylor, about you know your colleagues, right, and, and the collaboration and 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 putting things past people. So, so thank you so much for this time. This has been just as rewarding as as I thought about it. We appreciate you and and the work that you're doing. We're we're looking forward to to your article you'll let us know when when that comes out um, so we can so we can learn more and um, please uh, please take care of yourself okay thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it